for the rest of us, we are going to be turning our attention back towards the end of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Um, so, so if you would like, you can certainly turn there. I encourage you to. I encourage you to bring your own Bibles, too. Uh, I've, I've often heard growing up uh, one pastor say, bring your own Bible so that you can make sure that what I'm reading is actually what is in the Bible. Uh, so you know that I'm not just throwing words in here. Um, I hope no pastor ever does that, but uh, it's, it's a good practice still. You can keep me in check. Um, so today, uh, for those of you who are, have been paying attention just to the normal flow of things, and if you are looking through the, just the book of Matthew, you would notice that uh, we are actually skipping a section. Uh, it's the section that, uh, while it's very pertinent to us, because as Christians we certainly believe in the resurrection, uh, for, for this time of the church year, for everything that is going on, we're actually glossing over this because you have the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they're like, what's going to happen to this person when they die if they've married this person, this person, this person? And, and so I encourage you to read that, uh, to just continue to uh, gain that information, to refresh yourself. Uh, but we'll actually be looking over that section and, and turning our attention to the end of these, these constant debates that Jesus is facing with the religious leaders. Um, and today is kind of like the final nail, nail in the coffin for all of these debates. And after this point, he's never questioned again until the passion time. Um, so whatever happens here must be pretty important to, to kind of get all those people to stop bugging him. So, if you are able, I ask that you please turn with me to Matthew 22, 34 through 46, and, and stand if you are able as we read together. Um, it is Matthew 22, 34 through 46. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? This is the word of the Lord, and together we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, as we try to figure out how this greatest commandment text works within our lives, we pray that the Holy Spirit may come and may just strike our hearts to the core, that, that your spirit may speak to us and work within us and challenge us today. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Now, one of my favorite all-time standalone movies is 
The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Has anyone seen it? And my, 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 my wife, uh, okay, uh, fun fact, she hates the movie. Um, just because I, I, don't, I don't even know if she has a good reason. She just, it's just not her kind of movie. But my, just as a standalone movie, it is amazing. For your own health, I encourage you to watch it because it will make your life better in every single way possible. <laughs> no, you haven't. Uh, it, now, that might be an exaggeration uh, that it will make your life better, uh, but it is a really good movie. Walter Mitty, and I, I won't spoil it for you, but, but Walter Mitty, he works for Life magazine. And he is the person who collects all the, the photographs that come into the magazine. And he sorts them and catalogs them, puts away. And one day he receives this very special photo, uh, this photo from a, a famous photographer. And he's told that this is supposed to be the final cover of the magazine. And he can't find the photo. Now, the word that they use within this movie is, this photo is the quintessence of life. And so Walter Mitty goes on this long journey, which is the rest of the movie, trying to find this quintessence of life photo because his job hangs in the balance because of it. It's just a wonderful movie. It's rated PG, um, which is like rare these days. Uh, and so it's, it's a great movie. So I do encourage you, uh, to, to watch it at some point. Now, for those of you, if you have not already reached out and tried to Google what quintessence means, uh, it, I have it up there. It is the most perfect example of a quality. So in the movie example, the, this photo is the most perfect example of life. That's what they're saying. It, it, it's, it's the epitome of what life is. This idea of quintessence, just as it worked with Walter Mitty, kind of works within our own lives. Jesus here in this text is unveiling the quintessence of God's law and his relationship with humanity. He is showing us the perfect example of what it means to obey God's law and to work with each other. I think that's a pretty big deal today, right? Uh, especially in this day and age, especially given what's going to happen in the coming few weeks. Uh, it's a big deal to then understand the Lord that we serve, what his law demands from us. Now, having, uh, let me see here, having worked with uh, people over the years, I, I know that things often go smoother when Someone knows the why to a question, not just the how. Uh, in work, I've experienced that a lot. Sometimes you tell someone to go and do something, and they want to know why. Or you tell your children, clean up, why? Because I like the house being clean, okay? What, what answer do you need? Uh, but in the same way, the, the, the Great Commission is the why is the how we do things? It, we go out into the world. We make disciples. We baptize them. This greatest commandment is the why. This is why we do it. So if we needed that final reason as to why we should pay attention to this, it's right here. So let us then consider this quintessence of God's law. 
Now, when we talk about law, this can be confusing when you're reading the, through the Bible because the law is used in many different ways, especially if you read certain books. I love Paul, uh, but he is notorious for using the word law and talking about three different laws. Not all of them are the same. And so it's, it's very difficult to then pick and understand what he is talking about. Because in, in the, the Bible, we can have the law of Moses. We can have the law of human nature. We can have the law of Christ. And they are all very different from each other. And so we have to kind of understand then what is going on both here and throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, if you were to read a good chunk of it, especially any part of the Old Testament, as well as some parts of the New Testament, and you hear the word law, you would, you would be good to understand that he's talking about the law of Moses, which we know as Torah, uh, which is the Hebrew word. Uh, in the Greek word, it's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the encompassing of the law. Now, the actual law portion is only in the latter half of Exodus, Leviticus, parts of Numbers, and kind of a re-summary in the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis is thrown in there because that's kind of the reason the law exists in the first place, because it outlines the need for it and how Abraham receives the promise to eventually have this, this law that would help form a nation. But this is the law. But yet, even in Jesus' time, the law of Moses was not just reduced to those five books, because as the Jews grew, as they messed up, as they continued to figure out how to live, they said, we need to have some more ideas of how this works. And so they added more laws to it. These are what we would call second-tier laws. Actually, we wouldn't call them. The Jews would call them second-tier laws. They, they were kind of refining points. You know, when you have, when you have a, a guidebook that says, do this or don't do that, and then they have it paragraphed in, and they have a whole bunch of like italicized, like extra little bits of details that you need to know. In order to, in order to turn the hot water heater off, you need to turn the, the gas off. You need to unplug the electric. You need, you know, it's extra stuff to help frame how you accomplish the greater law. At some point in time, they said there's at least 664, I think, laws that the Jews were to observe. That's a lot of information. <laughs> That's a lot of information to consume. Now, the law of humanity, the law of human nature is very easy. It's, it's our sinful nature. People left to their own desires with no guidance from God, this is how they act. And, and that's what we are predisposed to. And then we have the law of Christ, which is the perfect embodiment that God gave Moses, but it's, it's done by someone who is both divine and human. So, so it's perfect. So as we talk about this, this law, we have to begin to frame everything around what he is talking about. When Jesus is talking here in Matthew, he's looking directly at the law of Moses, not with all the extra laws. He's looking specifically at Torah, and he's going right actually to Leviticus. It's actually even said that uh, if you were to go to the part where it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, if you were to go to that when it was written out in a scroll and you were to hold it right at that point, the scroll would be perfectly balanced on both sides. 
And they say that that's kind of why Jesus also used that, that phrasing that the law and the prophets hang on this because it, it, it's, it's central to all of the law. Now, when the Jews come to Jesus, they're questioning him about this because they, they're trying to narrow down what it is that they are supposed to believe. Again, at this point, they have 600 and some odd laws at least. They're saying, Jesus, what do we focus on? You have all these great teachings. You have all this understanding. So what are we supposed to do? And you would think that that would be very innocent, but really they were trying to trap him because they wanted him to say one law where then they could say, ah, but this law is more important and you totally went against who we were uh, taught from and, and all the tradition. So you're trying to tell us that all of that's not important. And so they were trying to trap him, trying to get him to say the wrong thing. And yet Jesus answers perfectly. Everything hinges on a right relationship with both God and others. He ties those two together so closely that in his mind, he could not answer one without the other. They asked for what is the greatest law, and he had to give them the two because they were so interconnected that you could not separate them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this idea of right relationships is, is all about love, not the affectionate, kissy face, you know, oh, kind of love. It's more of the uh, old school DC talk, love is a verb kind of love. Bonus points to anyone who gets that reference. Yes, they are a music band. <laughs> okay, it, it was 80s, 90s music band, Christian rap band. Uh, I am. Um, but they talk about how love is a verb. Love is an action. Uh, and, and this is what Jesus is saying here. In order to love, you must do. You can't just think. You can't just say you must do in order to show this love towards God and to others. To do it with all your heart, mind, and soul kind of sounds somewhat like what Pastor Jessica preached about last week. As this almost Jesus is trying to reemphasize the point that you worship God, you love God, you obey God, you serve God through your whole body. Not just parts, not just a little section, not just a few hours on one day, but through everything you say, everything you do, everything you think. All comes into how we love God. This means our time, our talents, our treasure, all starts with God first. Every equation starts with, how am I going to worship God in this? If it's something I'm saying, if it's something I'm doing, if it's something that I'm giving, how am I going to love God? How am I going to honor him? How am I going to keep him sacred and sanctified through this? We start with that question first. That goes for our homes, how we treat our homes, how, how we maintain our homes, how we treat our land. Do we, do we just throw trash on the ground in our yard, or do we care for it? Uh, it? It goes for how we treat animals, both the animals that we have, if you have dogs or cats, um, or if you have wild animals that come onto your property. Uh, all of that, how you treat everything, because God originally designed us as caretakers of this place that we call earth, we are supposed to nurture it and care for it and, and protect it. 
And so one of the ways that we show our love to God is by living out that caretaking nature, by treating things the way that they are supposed to be treated. But then he goes on and he says, and you have your relationship with others. People are just as important how you love God. In fact, I would argue that you cannot love God if you don't love others. Because God loves others. God loves people. And if you don't love what he loves, how can you say that you love him? We said this uh, Thursday night at the Bible study. Uh, I remember we were were talking about this, and I said, if you're married and, and you love absolutely nothing that is the definition of your spouse, if you love absolutely nothing about them, nothing that they do, nothing that they say, how can you say that you love your spouse? Wouldn't that be a really awful marriage to every day, everything you see, everything you do, everything they, they do to you and say to you just nags you? Like that, that would be very bad. Usually we try to find relationships that are the opposite, where we find someone who does things that we like too, or we can appreciate, or we can grow to appreciate. Sometimes that's the work that we have to do in a marriage is learn to appreciate it uh, for what it is. We don't just stop with our spouses. We don't stop with our children. We don't stop with our next-door neighbors. We are called to love all people as ourselves. All people. That, that means our employees. It means our bosses. It means even the people we would consider our enemies, the people who hate us. We love them, and we treat them the same way that we ourselves would want to be treated. Not the way that we would want to treat ourselves, but the way that we would want God to treat us, okay? I often hear this when I tell the teens this, any any teens that I've worked with, love your neighbor as yourself. It is not saying love your neighbor as you see yourself. It's love your neighbor as God loves you, which is very different because sometimes we can struggle with our own self-image, right? Sometimes we can think of ourselves less than who we are. No, we listen to God and who he says we are, and then we love others the same way that he tells us. That's how we love. And so we show this affection by speaking words of kindness and encouragement, and we constantly find ways to lift those people up who have been beaten down, those who have been discouraged. Now, I'd be remiss to to go on with such a perfect text here to not talk about something that is is very, very important to our Wesleyan holiness tradition, uh, which is Christian perfection. This is a strange word, uh, but is a topic that is a pillar to many denominations who follow in the footsteps of John Wesley. And and so we, we need to talk about it a bit. We need to understand it a bit, because when you hear it, People, especially who are unfamiliar with the Wesleyan holiness tradition, they hear Christian perfection and they, they're, they're confused. And, and if you were to just take it at face value, it sounds almost heretical. Christians? Perfect? No, that can't be. Christians can't be perfect until they enter into to heaven, until God does something greater. They can't be perfect here on earth. You are correct to think that, because that is true. We cannot be perfect in the sense of with no wrong. But that's not what John Wesley was saying when he wrote his plain account of Christian perfection. When he wrote that, he was trying to tackle something much deeper, something that we're talking about today. He says in his book, by perfection, I mean 
the humble, gentle, patient love of God and our neighbor ruling our tempers, words, and actions. The love of God and others keeping ourselves in check. The desire to love God and to love others, even if that means that we have to watch what we say, watch what we do, watch how we feel. That is his definition of Christian perfection. And so when it comes to it, it, we, we seek out really to live the greatest commandment. That's what Christian perfection is, is to find ways to love God and to love others. And so if, if you were to talk to people about this in this way, it would make a lot more sense. I, I remember when I was in college, I, I did not attend a Wesleyan-based college. Um, so when I wrote a paper on Christian perfection, my professor looked at the title and he said, um, are you sure you want to hand this in? Because he's thinking, what are you, you're going off the rails a bit. This was in theology class. And so they were thinking, what kind of theology are you trying to bring here? And, and I said, no, just, just read it, trust me. And he knew I was uh, at that point from a Wesleyan church. And I, I said, just, just read it. it it's fascinating. It's, it's so amazing what John Wesley is talking about. And sure enough, when we, when we look at it from the fact of he's trying to point us back to Christian perfection as being the fulfillment of the greatest commandment, it makes a lot more sense. Because we, we are striving for, we have a desire to love God, to love others at the cost of our tempers, our words, and our actions. And I bring this up for a couple of reasons. First off, it's important that we talk about our church history. It's important that we talk about our church tradition because we need to understand some of these things in which we believe. Uh, but more than that, I want you to see John Wesley, he was around 1700s, from 17-something to 1785, I think. For 1700 years, the church has continued to wrestle with this idea of what does it mean to love God and to love others. And it hasn't stopped with him either. We're still talking about it even today, right? So it's, it's an important topic. It's something that is so tremendously important to us. It's a cornerstone of our faith as Christians that we need to take the time to really figure out then how this works. And so I want us to kind of see just the importance that, that someone as great as John Wesley, a theologian in his own time, took time to write a book saying, we need to live out this greatest commandment. I encourage you to read it. You can find it online for free. For free, you can read it. And it's a it's, it's great book to read because it just it goes into a greater depth of how that looks and, and what he's explaining here. So, so now we move on to the next section where Jesus, he finishes his barrage of questions and he throws out his own question. He says, let, let me ask you one question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, we're not going to go into too much depth right now about the whole idea of the cultural perception of the Messiah and how that has changed and grown over the years. But the point of the conversation that I want us to touch on is that it's good for us to understand that we have to see Christ as doing more. He's setting things up for something greater. 
Because again, he's preparing for his death, which is going to be the fulfillment of the law. So he's setting the stage for this. The main idea that we look at today is the fact that the, the Messiah was never indirectly tied to this idea of divine. When everyone in the, in the Old Testament talked about a Messiah coming, they were not talking about God coming. They're talking about someone sent by God coming. And so when Jesus comes and he is proclaimed the Messiah, this is a twist because then he also in the same breath says, I am Lord, I am divine. Now, we have this predicament here because when David speaks this psalm, it's Psalms 110 for your reference, it's, it's used a lot in coronation of kings. And, and so when, when they say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, they were originally talking about how God is saying to this human king that they were crowning as king of Israel, you are now on the throne and you, you stay here, you rest here until I subdue your enemies. This is God to humans. But then Jesus comes and he says, this is what David was really saying through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, about the coming Messiah. And he changes the dynamic about this so that they become confused and in, impossible to answer his question about how then can David talk about someone greater than himself? Because everyone would assume that the coming Messiah was coming from the line of David. But you never speak in this culture about someone who was born after as being greater than someone who was born before. The father is always better than the son. Christopher, remember that. The father is always greater than the son. It's, that's the culture. So then when Christ says, this is what David's saying about the Messiah, how can he say about someone who is coming that is greater than David himself. And what Jesus is doing here is he's foreshadowing the, the quintessence, the most perfect example of God's relationship with humanity. Now, the women who've been attending the Monday night Bible study, you already know some of this that we've been talking about. You already know what we've been discussing because he's foreshadowing what eventually happens in Acts chapter 2. And that's something I know that you covered a couple of weeks ago because, you know, my wife and I, we talk. Um, so, so Jesus, he's beginning to change this idea of Lord and Messiah so that after his crucifixion, they can understand the fulfillment of the law that was happening through Jesus, which if you're curious, read Acts chapter 2 where Peter is talking to the crowds and he will explain all of what we're talking about here and it will make perfect sense. So I, I know that this, this is a bit dense. This is some heavy... Uh, outline. It's almost as if we have all the different pictures on the board and we're drawing the strings together. But this is, this is what we need to understand. We often take for granted the fact that Jesus is divine. In our, in our time and day, when we talk about Jesus, we always talk about him as being God. That was not the case in this time. No one thought that the Messiah was going to be God himself. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is taking and melding this relationship of the divine Lord and the human-centered idea of a Messiah. And he's bringing those two together so it can be a perfect unity of both 
wholly divine and wholly human in Christ. That is the perfect relationship between God and humanity embodied in Christ. And so with that, he kind of silences them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because they're so confused. They don't even know how to answer this because it makes such perfect sense. And yet, in order to accept it, you have to accept Christ as Lord as well as Christ as the Messiah. And both of those for the religious leaders, they did not want to do. So church, we have been given the, the ultimate quintessence of everything today. In God's word, we are given the most perfect example of, of God's law, of God's relationship with us, it's all right here. It's all given to us as a way to relate to who Jesus is and to who God is. But it leaves us needing to do one thing, to stop the endless debates. Uh, similar to the religious leaders, we need to stop the endless debates about all the nitpicking things that we're trying to figure out. The, the, the religious leaders, they're trying to figure out all these different laws. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do this? And, and all they were doing was just bickering with one another through the different religious heads. And, and Jesus is trying to show them that through the greatest commandment, the law is supposed to bring life, but the way you are debating about it is just bringing death. And in the same way for us, we just need to stop the debates. We need to stop all the arguing about this or that within the church so that we can, as, as brothers and sisters, come together and live out the most perfect law, which is to love God and to love others. So often we are trying to make sense of God's kingdom in a rational way that we can think about it, but when we do that, we miss the point of what God is calling us to do because the Bible isn't supposed to make sense to us. We are supposed to conform ourselves to the Bible. If we start to say we need God's word to make sense to who I am right now, we then have to twist the truth in order to make sense to the lies that we have been living in beforehand. But instead, we rely on the Holy Spirit to change us when we read God's word so that then we can accept the truth as it is and be transformed through that. And that's what we need to do every day as we read. We give our whole selves, not just part to God, but we give our whole selves. And this includes when we're alone what we do in our free time when no one else is looking, how do we love God through that time? How do we honor him through that time? It involves us when we're out in our community, when we're driving down the road, when we're in a restaurant, how we act, behave, speak, how we tip our waitresses or waiters. All of that speaks to who God is. Christians should be the best tippers, right, at a restaurant. They, they should be the most generous they, they should be the best workers. They should be the ones who are always on time, the ones who are always picking up the extra slack without having to be asked for because they want to honor God. And even on social media, we should be 
the example of God's love to those who are out there. If we were to look on our Facebook, on our Instagram, or Twitter, or whatever else it is, and we were to say, huh, that's kind of sketchy. Does that reveal God's love? Then it shouldn't probably be there. Because people are looking at us and judging every aspect. And they say, they claim to be a Christian, but they say this. They claim to be a Christian, but I know that the Bible says God loves this, and they're speaking directly against that. We need to make sure that our social media is the same as we would speak to someone in person because it's so much easier to hide behind that. But this also means that we love others. We love others as ourselves. This means no more backtalking, no more gossip, no more hate speech, no more favoritism, no more beating people up just because they don't agree with our idea. You don't like cheddar cheese? Well, I hate you because I love cheddar cheese. Like, what, what, how is that showing love to people? When, when we take things like that and we just make it the, the point of no return of a relationship. To be Christian is to work towards Christian perfection, as John Wesley puts it. It's to go on this long journey of, of figuring out this quintessence that God has given us, the most perfect example of his law and relationship with others, just as Walter Mitty had to go on a very long journey to find the quintessence of life. We'd go on this journey because we are trying to figure out how God is coming in this world as both Lord and Messiah. Something that, again, if you're, if you're a little fuzzy on, I encourage you to then to read the commentary that will come out tomorrow because I go more in depth there to explain some of that. Lord and Messiah together, divine and human, brought together as one. Our community is hurting. People are hurting. The last thing they need is a bunch of Christians who just want to argue. They need people willing to practically demonstrate the love of God in their lives. They need people who are willing to love others the same way that God has loved them. They need the life that comes from this true, true law that Christ gives us to love God and to love others. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, please help us this day. Such a simple command. Love you. Love others. But yet so difficult, so taxing, because it must take our mind, body, and soul. Help us to to have the desire to work towards this, this place in which we love both you and others at the expense of our own tempers, at the, expense, at the expense of our own words, at the expense of our own thoughts. May we temper all of those so that we may always show your love when we are alone, when we are with others, in our places of work, in our places of school, in our homes, online, 
everywhere. May we do everything in the love that you have shown us. And help us with this because it is not natural. It goes against the law of our human nature to do this. But Lord, we so desperately need it. So through your spirit, empower us to embrace this law. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. I encourage you with the benediction to raise your hands to receive the blessing today. Almighty God, your Son has shown us how to love one another. May our love for you overflow into joy, service and be a divine healing witness to our neighbors. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I now send you out into your communities to make Christ-like disciples. Go in the grace of God. God bless you.